This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Ebony Magazine. Pick up a copy and you will learn anything from news to entertainment. But there was a time when the historic magazine had a significant food section, a touchstone for African-American cooking. And before a recipe made it to print, it was put through the ringer in the test kitchen at the Chicago headquarters of Johnson Publishing Company. That kitchen became a hub for black culinary experimentation. In 2018, Landmarks Illinois rescued the 70s style kitchen from demolition. It's currently on display in New York's Harlem neighborhood, part of an exhibit called African American Making the Nation's Table. Now, WBEZ reporter Natalie Moore recently spoke with Sharla Draper, one of Ebony Magazine's first food editors. The kitchen was orange and purple, a little bit of gold, and it was bright, very upbeat for its time. The kitchen was designed to convey the creativity and warmth of the African-American reader of Ebony magazine. Uh, What was it like being a food editor at Ebony? Well, it was very exciting. I had read Ebony magazine, and so many little girls had read it, and I'd always wanted to be the food editor, especially after I learned they did not have a person on staff. When I arrived, I was the second food editor for Ebony magazine, but the first food editor to work in the new cutting-edge kitchen. Wow. That's, that's pretty historic. Why, why did you want to write about food? It really evolved naturally. I started my career as a home economist in the craft test kitchen, and there I wrote about recipes, and occasionally we would put out a cookbook and have to write some things about the recipe we were promoting. So it evolved over the course of my career. Tell us a little bit about the column you wrote, Date with the Dish, and what were some of the recipes you shared in that column? Date with a Dish was named by the first food editor at Ebony, Frida DeKnight, and she is the one who put that title on the column. Some of the recipes that I promoted uh, tied in with what our advertisers may have been interested in, but some of the advertisers included the Campbell Soup Company. We might include recipes for casseroles using Campbell Soup in the recipe. Some of the other recipes we included were, well, traditional recipes such as greens or black eyed peas. That's one of the recipe topics that I used for the very first feature. I put together for Ebony Magazine that was for a January edition of the book. So we certainly want to make sure everybody can have greens for prosperity and black eyed peas for good luck the first of the year. That's what I cooked on January 1st this year myself. (laughs) That's yeah, that's good because we certainly need all of those things during the year. Can you talk about the impact Ebony's food section had on the black culinary world? Well, one of the things that the food section did was shared with the world that African Americans cooked other things besides the traditional southern recipes of fried chicken and greens and beans. Though we cooked some of those foods, we were also interested in cooking items that we may have come into contact with. For example, we had a section where um, we talked about pasta, 
and each section would include three types of recipes, something that was familiar to maybe a novice cook, something that might be a little bit more complicated, and something for the experienced cook. For example, in the pasta column, we did a spaghetti with meat sauce, which is very straightforward, a vegetable lasagna, and then we had carbonara, which would be something for the more experienced cook. You mentioned Ebony's first food editor. Her name was Frida DeKnight. What was she like? Did you get a chance to... Unfortunately, I did not have a chance to meet her. Frida uh, passed at a young age in 1963, but her impact on the perception of the African-American consumer is significant. As early as the early 50s, Frida was sharing with food advertisers opportunities that were available via advertising or targeting their products toward the African-American consumer market. You were at the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the new exhibit in Harlem where the Tusk Kitchen is now on display. What was that like, and what was the reaction? Well, it was very exciting. I'd had an opportunity to see the, uh, let's say, the skeleton of the exhibit two years ago. They had made some adjustment, and they had moved the legacy quilt to the front. Now, the legacy quilt is 14 by 30 feet, and it includes a quilt square of African Americans who have contributed to the nation's table over the last 400 years. I'm fortunate I have a quilt square there, and many other contemporary food enthusiasts or food innovators. And then we also have quilt squares of people such as James Hemings, who goes all the way back to the era of Thomas Jefferson. So that's that's very impressive. That's the first thing you see as you come into the exhibit. And he's the one who invented macaroni and cheese, right? Yes, he yes. brought the technique back from France. One more question before I let you go, Charlotte. Celebrities were known to drop by Michigan Avenue to the Johnson Publishing headquarters and also come into the kitchen. Did you ever encounter any special visitors? Well, Reverend Jesse Jackson was a special visitor during his campaign for president while I was there. Also, I uh, had an opportunity to meet Billy D. Williams, who was in the building. And you just never knew who might come into the kitchen. And one of the first celebrities that was featured in A Date with a Dish under Frida DeKnight's tenure was Lena Horne. And she was making an Indian dish, which again shows that African-American consumers eat all kinds of food. That was Sharla Draper, former food editor at Ebony Magazine, talking with WBEZ reporter Natalie Moore. Now we'll check in with someone who can give us even more background on the interior design side of the kitchen. So joining us is Lee Bay, adjunct professor at Illinois Institute of Technology's College of Architecture. Hi, Lee. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. So we just heard from Sharla about uh, the feel of the kitchen, right? She said, the kitchen was designed to convey the creativity and warmth of the African-American reader. What interior design choices played into that? You know, it's really, it really is a fantastic space. I mean, the first thing that grabs you is the kind of psychedelic color 
that uh, that the that the uh, kitchen has. It's kind of a fabric that is uh, uh, a laminated fabric that it looks like it's it's all of one piece. Even the spaces between the door openings and cabinet openings, mm-hmm. uh, it meets so so closely that you can't you can't tell apart. And of course, it had you know things that were cutting edge for the time. Um, you know, toasters and and um, you know uh, ice dispensing refrigerators when back when nobody had them. Um, so so it, so it, it really begins to speak to the kind of um, arrival uh, that African Americans uh, uh, that was chron- of, the, of the life of African Americans that was chronicled in the book that we had kind of arri- in the magazines that we had arrived and and we had arrived in style. And the building typifies that in the kitchen, especially. Yeah, there were a lot of patterns going on in this kitchen. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this, you know, it, it looks like. Um, I mean, again, I mean, it's a, it's a laminated fabric, and it looks like. I mean, I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's hard to. I mean, you have, but it's hard to describe it to someone who hasn't. It's almost like those Peter Max dresses that you know women <laughs> used to wear on variety shows back in the day. You know, right. they share it's like these wild colors, kind of psychedelic and kind of swirling. Um, but, uh, but still, you know, but, but again, very tasteful and very well done, uh, done to a high style, but very well done. Yeah. Who was behind the design? You know, it was, um, well, you know, well, the Johnsons obviously, you know, you know, you know, were, you know, um, who, you know, the clients, um, Eunice and John Johnson, the designers were Razor and Elrod, um, uh, out of Palm Beach, uh, Palm Springs, California. And this was, a um, this was a design duo that the Johnsons knew because they had designed a house for them uh, uh, in California in Palm Springs, uh, as well as uh, they did the interiors of their apartment um, here in in, uh, in Chicago. Noteworthy, noteworthy about the apartment that uh, you can find a old story from Architectural Record with with Eunice talking about it, and 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 they had the apartment um, designed to match their skin tones. Uh, you know, Eunice and John nice. Johnson did, and and which I thought was kind of a clever thing. So they had an eye for design, and then the collaboration. And I think um, uh, there's an Ebony executive who, whose name escapes me now, who's still still with us, um, uh, who also played a, an important role in synthesizing all those things together. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know you had a tough time, Lee, sort of trying to describe this kitchen, but you've been there, right? Yeah, I, I was there when uh, when Columbia College bought the building, okay. uh, and and they, they let me come in to photograph it back in 2013. Well, can and, you talk uh, about then, the feeling? What, what does it feel like in there? You know, it it, it feels very much. You know, it, it's about the size. It's a little bit larger than a normal kitchen, and then they kind of had kind of has this this adjunct space uh, kind of behind it where where you could eat around the table, and then it faced a um, a cafeteria that, that everyone ate in, and also. Had you know a wild color wallpaper and bright colors and that kind of thing, but 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 the kitchen really felt experimental in, in many respects to to walk through, even though it wasn't in use when I saw it. Um, you know uh, the use of color um, that the, the um, there's a kind of a central uh, island with a stove uh, there. Um, it, it, you know it's still you know it's, so by the time I see it, you know it's it's forty years old or more, and uh, but it still felt very much of the future. You know, uh, uh, very yeah. sleek, very, very cool. They're ahead of their time somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can zoom out for us a bit and, and talk more broadly about the role that uh, Ebony Magazine played in, in the media landscape of Chicago during those decades of the 70s and the 80s. 
You know, certainly. I mean, um, you know, it, it plays an important role here in Chicago, but also internationally because it chronicled the stories, you know, particularly in its, in its kind of heyday in the 70s and 80s, uh, 60s, 70s and 80s. Not only did it talk about and cover the achievements that uh, African-Americans made in business, entertainment, uh, in politics, uh, but also talked about um, the uh, freedom movements and independence movements in Africa uh, as well. And, and there were subscribers in Africa. Um, I remember uh, reading a story back when it was on our table when I was growing up mm-hmm. about um, uh, war children in Italy that were um, that were that were the sons and daughters of GIs that were half Italian and half black. And I remember just being blown away by that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, so it was that, that kind of magazine. And, you know, and obviously, you know, it starts humbly. It, 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 its story is our story, right? Uh, for many of us, at least. Yeah. Uh, it starts very humbly, you know, with a loan from his, from John Johnson's mother. And then he grows it into this, this uh, media conglomerate that at his height, not only had Ebony and Jet magazines, but Black World. It had WJPC, the radio station. It had a syndicated television program. I mean, it was, it was a, it was very much the kind of modern media giant that you would see today. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, what are your thoughts on, on the lasting impact of this test kitchen and, and their food section in general? You know, glad to see it preserved. I mean, I, I, I should say this, the DeSable Museum, uh, and it doesn't get talked about, played an important role in approaching the developer uh, of the, who developed, redeveloped the uh, old building and getting him to preserve the building, uh, preserve the kitchen, so that now Landmarks Illinois and other players can step into it. So I think it's important yeah. to know that the city's black museum played the role, played an important role in preserving this kitchen. And now, you know, we get a chance to see, you know, with, with Ms. Draper's discussion, you know, kind of how that thing functioned. And not only as a, as a piece of architecture, mm-hmm. but also as a cultural, um, you know, uh, as, as a cultural piece as well, yeah. uh, encouraging us to eat other things. And, and, and she mentioned Lena Horne. That was pretty cool cooking the Indian dish. I mean, that's the kind of place it was. And that right. tells a different story about who we are. Super cool. That is Lee Bay, adjunct professor at Illinois Institute of Technology's College of Architecture. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.